Here we go. This is going to take a turn here this morning from where we've been. So we got to buckle our seatbelts and get ready to go. First Peter chapter 1, 13 through 19. I was on a call this week, a Zoom call. Anybody been on a Zoom call in the last year? All of us have. Anybody sick of a Zoom call? Yeah, all right. So I was on a Zoom call this last week. One of the benefits of us being in Acts 29 is every month we get to come together with a group of pastors and really be encouraged by other pastors in our Acts 29 network, our church planning network that we're a part of. And uh, last week we got to be on a call with Ray Ortland. I talk about Ray all the time. Ray is like a spiritual father within Acts 29. He planted Emmanuel Nashville when he was 58 years old. So if you're here and you're like, what in the world am I going to do with my life? You could do nothing, and when you're 58, you could go and plant a church. That sounds awesome. That's what he did. 58 years old, he went, he planted Emmanuel Nashville, and uh, he's in his 70s now, and he looked at us on on the computer screen. He said, guys, look at me. Look at me. We got to fight together. Look at me. I'm, he said, I, I'm in my fourth quarter of life. Don't send me to my grave grieving. I want to see every single one of you. Pastors. He's like, pastors, look at me. I want to see every single one of you following the Lord till you take your last breath. And he goes, look at me. You owe it to me. And he said, and I owe it to you. I think a lot of times when we think about our Christian life, it comes to this mentality, kind of this individualistic culture that I'm on my own, I can do what I want, my life's my own, I can live it however I want to, and we don't see that the church, the the body of believers that God calls us to be a part of is corporate in nature, that what you do matters, that what you do is significant in the life of people around you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, that Greg is going to teach on here in a couple weeks, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now that's interesting. You can't build a house out of one stone, Right? We, we need each other. We belong to each other. And that's this picture of, of we as the church, we need each other. What we're about to get into, we need each other. To be able to carry this out, to be able to be faithful to what Peter is calling us to here in this, these next few verses, we need each other. We desperately need each other to fight for one another, to grab hold of one another and say, I am going to help us. I am going to lead us. I am going to fight for us until I take my last breath. And I want you to hear me as a pastor of this church. I'm telling you, I am fighting for you. And I need you to fight for me. I need you. I need you. We need each other. And and what we're going to get into is this this idea, what I call the three spiritual battles of exile. 
Now, there's many battles we'll fight in in exile, but I think these are the three most important, and if we win these battles in life, we're going to be successful at some of the smaller ones. Three spiritual battles of exile. And the reason I talk about this idea of of battle is because he's going to say over and over again in these, these verses, don't do this, do this. And there's a gap between not doing what we want to do and what he's called us to do. And there's a wrestle, there's a tension. And in that is going to be the battle. In that is really going to be the fight. In that is really going to be the tension. And so let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 19. Fighting, resolve that we are going to fight for one another to live this out, all right? Here we go. It says, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, we see here in this, this verse, he starts, therefore, and we, we mentioned that last week. And what he's basically referencing is verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12 should prepare your heart for what he's about to calls us, call us into and, and call us to, to this gospel way of living. He's basically saying, now that I've given you these 12 verses, your heart should be encouraged to receive and to live in this way. And my question is, is, is the news that we heard in verses 1 through 12, does it stir in our heart this, this love, this passion that we are chosen by God, that we have a glorious inheritance, that we have this good news so wonderful that, that prophets diligently search for it, that preachers preach it, that angels can't stop looking at it. And if we have this news, therefore, set your hope fully. And so he's going to give us some implications. We talk about indicatives and imperatives. And you're like, all right, here we go. English lesson. Indicatives. These are the things that like never change. These are the things that are true. What is true? That you are chosen by God, that you are loved by God, that God has poured out his grace on you, that he has given you inheritance. These are never changing. These are always true. The imperatives, the things that he's calling us into is in light of that, in light of all these things that are, that are true, live in this way. See, he doesn't just like leap. If you read this text, it may seem daunting. We're to be holy. Anybody struggle with being holy? Some of us are like, I don't even know what holy means. Well, then we're probably missing the mark, right? Like, we're go- we got to discover that. We're going we're gonna to wrestle through that in this text. But it's this idea, it seems like so daunting. Be sober-minded that we would, uh, you know, set our hope fully on the grace that is to come. It just seems really, really challenging. But here's what I want you to see. 
I don't want you to, to, even though he takes this step and he's calling us into these things, don't forget the first 12 verses. I sat with a guy over lunch this past week. He was super discouraged. And anybody, like, you, you've seen someone discouraged and you come in and you just try to fix it. You just want to tell them, like, hey, here's all the things you need to hear that you need to, to do differently. And, uh, and I sat with him, and I was here, and I was like, man, here's the thing. Like, this is what you need to do, and do, and do, and do, and do, and do. And then I left, and I was driving in the car, and I was like, I don't think I actually helped that guy. I actually think I might have burdened him more. So I, I called him back up, and I said, hey, I just want you to know, man, like, I felt like I just, like, heaped a whole truckload upon you. And I, I don't feel like I relieved your burden at all. And like, what's the gospel to you? And, and I said, I just want you to know, like all the things that I just told you to do, to go and like, all of that is the fruit of abiding with the Lord. So I, I don't want to jump the gun here, but I, I just said, hey, I just want you to know, like, are you abiding with the Lord? Like, are you just spending time? Because all of these things that I shared are, are fruits of that. All the things that you're going to hear today are, are fruit of, of what you're, you're being exposed to in verses 1 through 12. And so in, in light of being chosen, born again, that we have a living hope, that we have an inheritance, that we have this message that angels long to look at, what do we do? And that's where we're going to, to get into this passage. Therefore, what does he say? Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Here's the first battle I want you to, to, to grasp. It's the battle of your mind. It's the battle of your mind. And we need a determined mind in exile. What he says here is, to prepare your minds for, for action. And what this literally means in the Greek, it says, girding up the loins of your mind. How many of you are, are, are girding up your loins? All right? You're like, what are your loins? All right? That's why, like, thankful that they translated the Greek into English here. So we're like, prepare your minds for action. But it was like, to gird up your loins. Now, this made sense to who Peter was writing. They would wear like these long robes, and, and what they would do is they would have a belt. If they were going to go to battle, if they were going to fight, they would cinch up their belt and they kind of tuck their robe into it so they could really get out there and fight. I, I, I remember being, uh, I did a mission trip in Mexico. This is my closest illustration to girding up your loins, all right? I was wearing a poncho. Okay, I was given a poncho to wear, and when we work, I would bend over to pick, and it would just like hang, and you're like, what in the world do you do with this? And I looked, and everyone else would kind of throw the front over your shoulder, and it was kind of, I'm like, that's girding up your loins. Now I know how to gird up your loins. What he's saying here is, there is a cinching up of your mind. There is a preparing of your mind that is going to be needed in exile. He talks about being sober-minded. What, what do you think of when you think of being sober? Not being drunk. We can't be in this state of incoherence where, where things are just coming at us and we're not able to perceive them. We need keen perception. We need a mind that is fully engaged. And everything starts in the mind. 
verses 1 through 12. We, we need to set our hope fully. We need a mind that is meditating on those things regularly. Our, our mindset, these are not meant to be truths that we just read and we forget and we walk away from. These are truths that we continually repeat over and over and over, that we meditate in our mind, that we are rehearsing these things over and over and over again. We need to know these truths, believe on these truths, resonate on these truths. It starts in our mind. Where does it not start? It, do, it doesn't start in our behavior, Right? Like we, we come, I do this with my kids, I look at my kids and I'm like, you're acting wrong, stop that, right? Like, and we're like, change your behavior. That's the way we do it. That's not how God teaches us. God says, I, there needs to be a renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2, you've heard this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need transformed minds. We need renewed minds minds. James 1.15 talks about how sin enters into our life. It says, then desire, all right, our heart, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully, gro- uh, fully grown, it brings forth death. And we see this pattern. It's like our minds shape our desires, our desires shape our behaviors. When we look at this and we go like, why in the world am I in sin? I just need to change my behavior. No, you need to change your heart about that. And to change your heart about that, you need to change your mind about that. All of these rise and fall together. It's a battle of the mind. And so he gives us these truths to consume our mind, to grip our mind. We, we need this, this, these truths really poured into our head to change our mind, not just change our behavior. He says, be sober-minded. When we're, when, when we're in this drunken stupor, it's our perception is skewed. Now, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to kind of let the, the answer out here out of the gates. One of the things that he's going to be talking about here is like that we long for spiritual milk here. We're going to get into to chapter two. That all of these things are shaped by the word of God. And so this is kind of part one. Next week will be part two. How do we have a renewed mind? God's word, like we need these truths to shape so that that we don't conform ourselves to the world. We need a renewed mind and a renewed mind gives us a renewed heart and a renewed heart gives us a renewed life. And so who helps you live a sober-minded life? We all need that person. We need people that help us live sober-minded lives. That we would set our hope fully and, 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 and not partially, our hope fully on the grace. Now, you gotta understand, uh, just to jump back into the context of the, the original hearers, this is such great news to them. They have nothing to put their hope in. We're not that fortunate. We're putting our hope in our our finances, our friends, our family, our jobs. We have so much to to hang our hat on of hope and, and really just say like, this is what I'm trusting in. And he's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. That's where our hope lies, that it's fully on God's love, gift, 
heart for you as sinners. You don't have to clean up your life. It's not get your life in order. It's just put your hope fully on the grace that is yours. So you got to pay attention to your meditation. What's capturing your meditation? What's capturing your mind? What's grabbing your thoughts when you have a few moments to spare during the day? It's the battle of the mind. The second thing is, it's the battle of the heart. We need a devoted heart. Now, when I first read this text and I got into verse 14, I, I start reading, as obedient children, and I know myself, I, I'm not obedient. Anybody else, you would just be honest? And, and then not a rhetorical question. You're like, I'm not obedient. All of us, every single one of us, our hands should be, none of us. We're, none of us are obedient. We're, we're all disobedient. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Now, I read that, and I wasn't very motivated. I was actually kind of discouraged. I was like, how do I be holy? I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do that, and how do I stand in front of people and motivate them to be holy? And so I was like, what, is, what even is holiness? I think a lot of times when we think about holiness, what comes to mind is morality. Just do the right thing. That's holiness. Now, the struggle with that is we read back in Exodus and like plates and dishware were holy. And so you're like, well, how does a plate have morality? So what, is it, what does it mean? What is this idea of holiness? Holiness means to be set apart. To say that God is holy means that God is set apart, that God is unlike anything else in the world, that God is, is far above, significant. He's greater than anything else. He stands in a class all to himself. He is holy. And, and, and really, what, what does it mean for me to be holy? Well, in this text, we're, we're given the opposite of it. The opposite of being holy is conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. So while we're sitting here and we're like, hey, how many of us are, have, have been ignorant? Now, all of us again? All of us, like we've all been ignorant. So what it's saying is there's things that are, and it's former, it's not current. So there's things that we used to not know that now we know that help us not conform and help us live holy lives. So let's, let's keep going down this path. And I, and I really want you to grasp this this morning. I know this might be heady, but how many of you, you're with me? You're with me, okay. Be holy as I'm holy. What does it mean? He, he's holy. He's set apart. He's significant. There's things that I did not know that I was ignorant of, but now I know. What are those things? The fact that God is holy. I now know that God is set apart, that God is above, that God is significant. And because of that, I don't give my life to lesser things. 
things are, are, are revealed for the fraud they are. Things are revealed for the lie that they are. Things are revealed. Now I see without this skewed perception, I see things very clearly now that I'm no longer in, former, in my former ignorance. Now, here's the thing. Just because it says former ignorance, do we not sometimes go back there? And again, that's that tension. We forget. We're a forgetful, forgetful people. We're people with amnesia. So we forget the holiness of God. We forget the set-apart nature of God. So we, again, that's where we got to go back to the mind, and the mind has to be renewed every day. We got to be transformed. We got to have these truths poured over us, that God is set apart, that God is above all. And when we remember that, then I don't give my heart to lesser things, which means I'm set apart myself, fully devoted to God to give my life to Him and not giving my life to anything else. That's how I'm holy. Holy holy is a sense of going, I am set apart for God's purposes. That, That my life is is poured out as a devotion, as a sacrifice to the Lord. The Lord is holy. He's set apart. I see his value and significance. And because of that, I give him my life because he's worthy of it. That's what it means for us to to be holy for God's holy. And that's what I, I, I want you to wrestle with in the sense of going, what does God's holiness have to do with my holiness? What what does God's nature and characteristics have anything to do with mine? Romans 11 talks about this. The end of uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33, into Romans 12, it says these two things. It talks about the holiness, the the separateness, the uh, standing in a class of his own. It says, oh, the depths and riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. So what he's saying is he stands in this class all alone. Who has anything that can can offer anything to him that he doesn't already have? Who's his counselor? Who can speak things into his life that he doesn't already have? He has all the wisdom in the world. He is above all. He is powerful. He's mighty. He's holy. Therefore, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's ultimately what it comes to is that when we see the value of God, we don't devote our life to anything else. So it's a mind, and then we have a devoted heart, but the last thing, it's, it's the battle over your life. It's the battle over your life. We need a disciplined life. Check this out, verse 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father, okay, so we have this this one idea on this side that he is a loving father, he is a caring father, he's our dad, but he's a dad who judges. Oh, hold on a second. So he's loving father, but he's also a judge. And we see these two tensions here. 
He's a judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And then he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, important. This is very important. Imagine you're in exile, you're afraid, you're being given hope. And what does Peter say? Hey, all of you people that are scared and afraid, conduct yourself with fear. Thanks, Peter. Like, how does this make sense? Conduct your life with fear. Imagine my kids come in middle of the night. Dad, we had a nightmare. We're afraid. And I said, hey, listen up, Jet. Listen up, Jackson. Listen up, Lila Kate. Conduct your life with fear. They're like, we, we are. We're afraid. We're, we're fearful. What do we do? We're, we're afraid. And he's talking about a right kind of fear. It's fear for God. When you have a fear of God, all other fears begin to grow as the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, strangely dim. You know that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we, when we fix our eyes on him, when we have a right-sized proportion of who God is in our life, all other fears begin to slip away. If you're, you're experiencing anxiety, the anxiety in your life is because you don't have the right-sized God in mind. When, when, when we're talking about this idea of living in exile and like living in this community that's not our, our home, we think like there's persecution and suffering. It, it, we're meant to have this, this picture, this right-sized view of who God is because when God's in his right size, we put people in their right size. Because a lot of us, we, we elevate people. We have this big view of people. We're so fearful of people and opinions and, and their acceptance of us. And we have such this, this large view, this supersized view, that we don't see God for who He truly is. Paul Tripp says this. This is key. Fear is only ever conquered by fear. So, I'll pause. I'm going I'm to come back to the quote. Fear is only ever conquered by fear. If you're like, am I being faithful to God? Well, maybe you need more fear in your life. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem, it seems counterproductive, right? Like, we need more fear to be faithful to what God's calling us to do here. But he says, fear is only ever conquered by fear. Awe of God really is the solution here. It is only fear of God that has spiritual power to overwhelm all the horizontal fears. That's all these. Look around. You guys are fearful of each other. You're, you're trying to impress one another. We, we fear one another in this room. We fear what our coworkers think. We fear what our bosses think. We fear what our neighbors think. We fear what our family thinks. We have all these horizontal fears. We need a vertical fear. 
We need, we need this fear of God that has spiritual power to overwhelm all the horizontal fears that can capture our heart. It is only when God looms larger than anything you're facing that you can be protected and practically freed from the fear that either paralyzes you or causes you to make foolish decisions. How do we, how do we get this right-sized view of God? It goes back to this idea of the, of the mind. It goes back to this idea we need to be saturated with the truths of God's word, that we need God's word poured into us. I sat with one of my friends. He's here in this room. I meet with him every week. It's a joy. And I, I, over the past few months, I've seen the Lord stir in him a passion, a, a fruitfulness, a faithfulness. And I just encouraged him when we met last Friday. I said, hey, I just want you to know I'm seeing so much growth in your life. And you know Why? Because your life is being saturated with the truths of God right now. You know why? Because you're waking up every morning and you're spending time in God's word. You're waking up every morning and you're saturating your life and you're meditating on these truths. You're setting reminders as you go throughout your day of these truths of, about who God is. You're involved in an equip group. So you're studying the scriptures together with a group of people. You're rustling those out. We meet every Friday morning and, and we're being reminded of these truths together. Your life is being saturated. Guys, it it will not happen without that happening. You will not be faithful to this. You will have all these horizontal fears in all the world living in exile unless you have this one great fear of who God is. We need that. We need more fear in our life. We need to fear appropriately, to fear rightly. So my question is, is, is God big in your life? Do you have a right-sized view of God? You will live for your greatest fear, whatever your greatest fear, and you write that down. The thing that captures your heart and mind most, that you think about most, that, that's, that's probably the thing, your greatest fear. Like, you're thinking about finances, all right? And I, I'm, I'm there with you. Like, we moved out here. Like, there wasn't a church in existence. We're like, how do, we, how do we start this thing? How do we build this thing? Is this thing gonna last? Are we gonna be able to, like, how, what is this going to look like? And, and we can wrestle with that, and we can be fearful over that. But when I'm fearful over finances, I, I recognize that I have a very small view of God. When I'm fearful over circumstances in my life, I have a very small view of God. You live for your greatest fear. I'll give you another quote here. I've been reading a book called Evangelism as Exiles, and it's actually taken from 1 Peter. It's a great read. Um, but it talks about this, and, and I thought it was easily related to what we're discussing here today. And it says, and far too often, this is the problem in our evangelistic endeavors. We're fundamentally committed to keeping people happy and having them like us, having them think we're smart, contemporary, hip, tolerant, progressive, fun, approving, and the list goes on. That's, that's a lot of us. We want to be in one of those categories. 
We want to please them. We want them to approve of us. We withhold the truth for sake of, a, of acceptance. We polish our social media persona to remove the rough edges of religiosity. What does that mean? Rather than being like, man, I've, I'm so blessed by the Lord today. We'll just leave out the Lord. It'd be like, I'm so blessed. You know, like, we'll, just, we'll remove that sense of religiosity. And like, let's not talk about the Lord. Don't want to, to, to like run any relationships. Don't want to ruffle any feathers. And it says, and we nurture relationships with unbelievers for years without broaching the subject of Christ. Why? To please people. In our twisted understanding, we reason such people-pleasing efforts are for the sake of our future gospel opportunities. We want to be hip. We want to be tolerant. We want to be cool. We don't want to engage in anything that's going to ruffle any feathers. Why? Because hopefully someday in the future, I want to be able to share the gospel with you. But in reality, what really is going on, we're often just fearing others instead of God. We're fearful. We're fearful. If we're going to be faithful in exile, we need a disciplined heart, a devoted heart. We need a disciplined life. We need a determined mind. We, we're, we're going to have to have this right view of who God is if we're going to be faithful. And remember, we're in this together. We're fighting in this together. And I'm hoping we're, we are faithful in exile. We are faithful in this. But listen to where he goes in this text. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Here's what I would say. A disciplined mind, a devoted heart, a disciplined life is only made possible by the blood of Jesus. Again, I don't want to be guilty of saying, hey, here's some more things to heap on you to go and do today. But I want you to see that these are not things that can be purchased. Silver and gold cannot purchase these. These aren't created by your own sweat and blood, but the blood of another. Your life was purchased by Jesus. If you want to know how valuable you are, the value of something is what someone's willing to pay for it. What someone was willing to pay for your life was the life of Jesus. Jesus gave his life. You were ransomed from death. You were ransomed from your futile ways. You were ransomed from your ignorance. You were ransomed from a, from a drunken mindset. You were, you were ransomed from your former ignorance. You, you've been ransomed. You've, you've been saved. You've been purchased. You've been redeemed. And if he can help you win the battle over that, don't you think he'll help you win these smaller battles? If, if he can come and he can redeem your life, if he can take a heart of stone 
and put a heart of flesh, one that is softened to the things of God, one that desires to be an obedient child, one that desires to pursue holiness, to be devoted to the Lord, to want to pursue the things of of significant value. Don't, Don't you think that He's going to help us win these battles, that he's going to help us journey this life in exile. So I just ask you this morning, how are you going to win the battle over these areas of your life? And what I, I really want you to do this morning is when we sing here in a second and when we take communion and we come together really like symbolizing that we are the body of Christ, that each, we all make up this body, that it is all of us coming together, that the way we fight these battles in exile is we do it together. The reason we have a church, the reason we have God's word, The reason God has given us one another, the reason God has given us pastors and elders, the reason God has has brought us together for this significant point in time is so that we would help each other fight these spiritual battles in exile. The battle over the mind, the battle over your heart, and the battle over your life. Look, your mind shapes your desires, your desires shape your behaviors. We can't, we can't go and just try to put fruit on our tree, like taping oranges on our tree and say it's an orange tree. Our, our roots, we have to be rooted. We have to, at the core of who we are. So Jesus had to come in. Jesus had to come in and change us at the core. He had to change our heart. He had to change our mind so that our behaviors would change. God is doing that work. God is transforming us. God It's changing us. And so, let me read this passage and then we'll close. Hebrews 3, 12. I I think this is my favorite, like, this is my life passage. The band can come on up. I I quote this all the time, but I'm like, I, I really feel like this is the key to winning these spiritual battles in our life. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This passage very clearly shows we need another. We need another. We need another, or our heart will be hardened. Our heart will be hardened because we'll be deceitful. We'll be deceitful. The, the, the lies that are thrown at us. And so we, we have to fight for one another. So that's why we, we say, get in a community group, get in an equip group, get in the lives of people. Our whole goal, our whole desire for any of this is that you would do life with people. I know that's become a cliche saying, but I'm like, I don't really care. You won't make it on your own. You need someone. You need someone to fight these spiritual battles. If we're going to make it in exile, we need each other. All right, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the church. The church is a gift. The church is a blessing. The people of God. Not a building, the people of God. God, you've given us a people that, that we get to come together, that we get to encourage one another, challenge one another, press into one another, love one another. And Lord, you have done this work in us. Lord, you've, because of your grace, and we're setting our hope fully on the grace that is to come, meaning that there's not anything that we can reveal about our lives that you have not already covered with your blood. That there is nothing I can't share with my neighbor about the sinfulness or disobedience of my own heart that you have not already forgiven. So Lord, we can live in, in open, honest, authentic lives with one another. Lord, we don't have to hide. We don't have to stay secluded to our own self just to protect ourselves, so that we can put off this, this image. Lord, you've set us free from that. And Lord, you've given us this great grand view of who you are. And so Lord, I pray that in light of your holiness, in light of your set apart nature, Lord, that we would live holy lives devoted to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.